0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy and media, as well as entertainment. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do on these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide At our global conference is the SALT Conference, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Oliver Stone to SALT Talks. Academy Award-winning Oliver Stone has written and directed over 20 full-length feature films, among them some of the most influential and iconic films of the last several decades. Some have been at deep odds with conventional myth, films such as Platoon, the first of three Vietnam films, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, Natural Born Killers, and Nixon. Uh, Oliver Stone's films have reached far and wide international audiences and have had significant cultural impact. These include Salvador, a deeply critical view of the US government's involvement in Central America, Wall Street, an expose of America's new capitalism, World Trade Center, a story of two of only 20 9-11 survivors, The Doors, a poetic look at the 1960s and Jim Morrison's ecstatic music, and finally Snowden, a story about the uh, international uh, acclaim of the recent American whistleblower uh, who is now uh, potentially going to get a pardon from President Trump in his remaining days in office. Uh, Stone's other films include Any Given Sunday, an unconventional view of the world of American sports, an epic historical drama, Alexander, as well as Alexander the Ultimate Cut, W, a satirical view of former U.S. President George W. Bush, and finally Wall Street 2 Money Never Sleeps, a realistic sequel about the 2008 financial crash and Gordon Gecko's fate after prison. And that uh, movie actually features our co-host today on Salt Talks, mm-hmm. Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, Stone was born September 15, 1946 in New York City. He served in the US Army Infantry in Vietnam in 1967 and 1968, and was decorated with the Bronze Star for Valor. After returning from Vietnam, he completed his undergraduate studies at New York University's Film School in 1971. His path to success as as a writer uh, was not a direct path, as we talk about a lot here on Salt Talks. He worked as a taxi driver, a merchant mariner, an advertising salesman, and a production assistant before becoming synonymous uh, with everything we think about uh, the movie game, as he calls it. Uh, and hosting today's interview is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT, and as I mentioned, uh, had a, his acting debut, I believe, in Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. Uh, but with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview.
1: See, you know, Darcy, you keep rubbing it in, okay, because you needed crazy glue for your eyelid to see me in the movie. And of course, I, I obviously didn't do that. Obviously, I didn't do that well because Oliver never invited me back for another rendition
2: of one of his great movies. But uh, were, uh, I'm sorry, Anthony, you were terrific. And I had reluctantly to leave some of it on the. Editing room floor because the picture was long, I had to come. T- I had to cut Donald Trump in order to save your spot. Oh well, I
1: appreciate you doing that. I remember Trump in the barbershop shop, and you didn't right. like the thing, and you you movie. I like that
2: movie. No, no, That's not true. Don't oh. start a oh. don't start don't start a myth here. I liked him in the picture. Uh, it worked. The scene worked, and I but it was not at the right time. I should have done it earlier in the film. In fact, I'd like to recut it and put the put him back in. I think it's good.
1: Right, well, there you go. All right, so you you, uh, you you wrote a great book. You know, I'm not that self promotional, uh, Oliver. Right? You know, you wouldn't consider me self promotional. Look at that. I'm holding up the book. Look how handsome you were back back in the day. What? How old were you in this picture, Oliver?
2: I was 21, going on. No, I was 22. I was on my last mission in Vietnam. It was uh, right before I left in November of '68. It was about sometime in October. It was the very end came out of 11 days in the rain, we were on a, stuck on a mountain, and it was pretty hairy for a while, and uh, I was very relieved to get out of there, very relieved. You,
1: you, you, uh, you wrote beautifully in this book, I, I'm recommending this book, it's a great holiday gift. Uh, my son, who's an aspiring uh, director and a videographer in the music industry, I just uh, wrapped this uh, book for him and, and made it a Christmas present. Uh, but you start the book in such a beautiful way. You tell such a touching story about your parents. Uh, it's very, very real. It's typical of your movies. It's raw, it's emotional, and it's honest. And so bring our listeners and viewers into the early part of your life and describe your parents for us and a little bit about how you started your career arc. Uh
2: Well, my parents were crucial to my life, like everybody's parents are, but they were not destined really to be a, a couple. Uh, my father was a, a military man, a lieutenant colonel in Paris and in Berlin after the, libera- the liberation of Paris. And uh, he was on Eisenhower's financial staff and uh, a Wall Street man all his life. My mother was a French, uh, her parents were hotel people in Paris, but she came from Savoie, and she was, a very healthy French vigorous uh, young 19-year-old girl and she fell for this man she had a fiance but she fell for this man with his uniform and his medals and all that and uh, you know the Americans were pretty powerful then and had a lot of money France was broke and in trouble she broke off her engagement with a Frenchman and she married him very kind of abruptly and uh, I was they were made she was made pregnant in France and she came back to america on a, on a gi ship i don't know how much detail you want but there was 20,000 gi guys on the boat she was the only female on the boat and uh, it was a rough voyage i was there too and i remember being uh, rocked incessantly by the atlantic the north atlantic in that that january winter it was terrible and i was born in new york city uh, in september of 46 right after you know the war had ended and the the whole country was picking up again, and it was quite an interesting time. I lived through a lot of that in the 50s, 60s, and they, they finally broke apart in the 60s, and it was rather climactic, and I describe it in detail in the book, because I was away in boarding school, but I was the only child, and of course, it impacted me greatly, because I didn't know it was coming, and uh, they didn't tell me anything. It was no forewarning, you see, and that's what makes it, I think, very dramatic to find out all these things about your parents afterward, in hindsight. And it's quite shocking, some of the details.
1: Well, it's, it's very tender. And uh, you also write about the fact that other divorced children go through similar things. It's a breakup and a destruction of the family. And you describe the three of you as becoming three separate entities as opposed to uh, a glued together family, which has its own level of trauma. Uh, but you speak very lovingly about both of your parents and uh, you've got accepted to your dad's alma mater, Yale, uh, but you have other things in mind and you're thinking about going to war. And tell us the thought process back there to the young Oliver Stone uh, making those decisions.
2: Well, I grew up like most American children in the 50s with a healthy dose of violence uh, on television and movies, especially uh, movies. I loved them, uh, watched you know, TV shows, cowboys, westerns, detective shows, all kinds of violence were evident. And in a way, it was sort of a healthy violence. It was sold to us as a you know, redemptive violence that everybody had the right to get back at their enemy. And I grew up with that idea that we had the, almost a Christian right to, to violence, which is a strange idea when you think about it, but that was the American way. So when I grew up and I was in, uh, as I was coming of age, the Vietnam War was about to, was a beginning to happen. And the concept of going to a war was romantic to me, I I, I have to say. So uh, school was not working out. I uh, I, I was deeply troubled by the divorce. Uh, Many things uh, were troubling me. And uh, in those, I guess in present day terms, you'd say I had, I should have, you know, I had some form of, I should have seen a psychiatrist but that was not very popular back then in the 60s, early 60s. I ended up dropping out of Yale and teaching in Vietnam for two two semesters. I ended up uh, in Saigon alone and it was quite an experience and then I ended up going to the merchant marine. I joined the merchant marine as a wiper and uh, sailed around Asia and I also came back to the United States on the ship. Quite a story but I didn't go into it here. Uh, the point was that uh, when I got home, I went back to the school, Yale, couldn't make it. I couldn't, see, it was a You, I think you know something about this, Anthony, you went to, uh, uh, you went to Tufts. No, that's, well, Tufts is a good school, but I'm saying there was a sort of an elitism at Yale that I, I just could not stand. There was a certain class of people, George Bush was in my class, just to give you an example, uh, that was a, a C student. Uh, a C student and proud of it and generally ignorant and fraternity bound. He ended up, as you know, avoiding Vietnam by, uh, his, with his father's influence, he got appointed to the National Guard. I think it was in Alabama and, you know, whatever the story is, it's a pretty dirty one. He never really served and he didn't care about it. He did a lousy job at avoiding the draft. And it, it came out in the press and a lot of people got into trouble. Dan Rather got fired, but that's another story. But that's the kind of people that I was, did not like to be around. They were running the country. They learned, they became the ruling class of this country. Uh, whether it's Bill Clinton or Obama, they all went to Ivy League colleges. Uh, something was wrong with our system. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know what to do. I just wanted to get out of it. I wrote a book too, but the book was turned down. The book became later was published as A Child's Night Dream in 1997 by St. Martin's. And it's quite a sensitive book very yet written by a 19 year old boy. Anyway, I ended up in Vietnam and I thought it was the best thing for me because, uh, I just wanted to get away from any kind of privilege, any kind of elitism. And I wanted to go at the bottom level. And I started out as a private and I went, to, I asked for infantry and I got it. I asked for Vietnam. I didn't want to be sent to Korea or Germany. And I ended up in the field after six months of training in uh, September of 67. I was 21 years old on my birthday when I flew over on an airplane on the 21st birthday. As you know, in inter- inter- the international uh, time zone, you drop a day. And that was, a- that was my 21st birthday that day. Uh, I was shot twice. I was wounded twice, shrapnel and shot. And both times, uh, that was early in my tour, the first three, four months. And I got better as a soldier, but it was a very rough beginning. And they put me out on point right away. I see a lot of that is in platoon. I I don't, I hope you get to see it again. It's a powerful vision of what it was like to be in Vietnam. I think it's the most realistic ground version of that war. It's not, I've
1: seen the movie three or four times. I love the movie. I actually also watched the movie A few years ago, with your over the top narration of the movie, which I found very compelling. You know, that was like part of the bonus features of a a CD back in the day. Oh, uh,
2: yeah. With the uh, commentary you do, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember. You
1: you were like on a microphone explaining the different scenes and shots that you took. There's one scene in that movie I was always dying to ask you about. I'm going to ask you now. There's a scene with William Defoe and Charlie Sheen, and he's a fresh guy, he's a newbie in the platoon and he grabs them, and he takes his backpack, and he starts taking out of his backpack things that he thinks are irrelevant to him. And it's this sort of veteran trying to help out the younger guy. And I've always wanted to ask this, was that true to your life? Did someone do that for you with your backpack when you got to
2: Vietnam? Oh, very much so, yeah. I was overpacked. I, You know, we, although we were trained and we went over there, when you get, actually get there in, in the jungle, you still have to learn a lot to learn a lot, and I was obviously overpacked, and uh, it was it, it's so hard when you you know you're cutting point for eight nine hours a day or six hours a day, with a machete you can't what, carry that kind of weight.
1: What would you say now, reflecting? What impact did the experience of Vietnam have on your worldview?
2: John, gee, you're talking about a huge impact. You know, I would say Vietnam was. I didn't realize it then, Anthony. I, w- I went to a, I was trying to survive and trying to integrate and do, be a good soldier, which I did become. And I eventually, as you know, I, I got a bronze star because I was able to take care of myself and take care of other people too. I was about uh, 13 months, I was in most in the field for about 11 of those months. The three things I wrote, up. I didn't realize it until later. This is, you know, I'm writing it from the hindsight of a, Older man now, looking back, there were three big lies about Vietnam that bothered me, big lies. One was the amount of people killed by friendly fire uh, that's always glossed over and unreported by the Pentagon. It's not something that an attractive idea because the Pentagon doesn't want the parents to believe their, kid, their child was killed by friendly fire. But that happens a lot, especially in a jungle asymmetrical war situation where you don't see the enemy easily. And you don't see your own men because you're firing across lines, you're firing over, line, over your own men sometimes, you're throwing grenades. And then there's artillery coming in, sometimes misdirected. Airplanes uh, dropping, uh, uh, dropping bombs, sometimes misdirected. Napalm too. Uh, I estimate, and I honestly did, uh, in the book I say 20% of the people k- killed and wounded there were friendly fire. That's a pretty big number. When you add it up, a lot of people would be really upset. That has never come out, they never come out. Then the, I talk about the lie of, uh, of uh, killing civilians, villagers. We, I, a, lot of my opera, a lot of our operations were crossing into villages. Sometimes we were in the jungle, sometimes we were on the coast. In the, I, this is when I was in the 1st Cavalry Division up north. We went into a lot of villages, trashed them, looking for supplies, looking for weapons. And sometimes we'd find them, sometimes not. But it was just chaos, and there was a lot of abuse that went on. I'm not saying it was consistent. I'm saying I'm not saying it was a My Lai situation, but it was bordering on it. There was a lot of antagonism against the Vietnamese. It was a lot of racism in a lot of the troops, not all. A lot of the, and I dealt with that in the scenes in platoon where you see some of the uh, some of the some of the people very racist and, of course, you see a lot of people who are not. But uh, there was a distrust of the Vietnamese uh, skin, the race, as well as... See, we, we, we never knew who the enemy were. We're not sure. Sometimes they wouldn't show up for a while. They'd just be booby traps, ambushes. People would get hurt and uh, frustration and you take it out on the, on, the, on the villagers who sometimes acted dumb sometimes looked like collaborators. Mila was very much that situation. They had not seen a lot of the enemy for months. Right. And a lot of them had been hurt. And when they got there that day, they really took a vengeance on them. They killed 500 people. And you know what, I mean, I, I almost made a movie on it. It was almost happened, but it was canceled in the last second. There was 500, more than 500 civilians killed in that particular village, more in the other villages. But they, not one bullet, not one enemy bullet was fired at the U.S. That was established by the army itself in a commission that they investigated the, the, the massacre. Not one enemy bullet. Okay, that's the, my second lie. The third lie is uh, the biggest lie of all, that we're winning this war. This was a lie that was from there from the beginning. This was the origins of the war. They lied about that in Washington. Pentagon papers proved that consistently lied about the, the enemy, the number of enemy dead, how well we were doing, that we were winning the war. This constant reframe in the newspapers, in the military, in the in the brass, in the Pentagon, went around and around for years until one day, it just was clear after the Tet offensive, after three years of war, January 68, that it wasn't true, that there was more North Vietnamese than we ever dreamed, and that they were succeeding. And they continued to succeed despite taking a heavy casualty count because they were fighting for their independence of their land. That means all of Vietnam, not North, South Vietnam, Vietnam. And they were a formidable enemy. They were very smart, very smart, used very little, they took everything they could get from us. That they stole or they, they, uh, they, uh, they had various networks through our, you know, we, we sold a lot of weapons to them by accident too. We gave weapons to the South Vietnamese, and a lot of times the South Vietnamese would give... Soldiers would give weapons to uh, to the North Vietnamese. It was a mess. But that lie was that we're winning was never true. And it, it backfired, and we retreated, as you know, we pulled out peace with honor. Nixon sold us the peace with honor, and this is a new president came in after four more years of conflict and more people dying. Several, you know, we don't know. Robert McNamara who was Secretary of Defense estimated up to three to four million Vietnamese were killed in that war. And I think that means mostly civilians.
1: Well, and it also created an arc of uh, further catastrophe in the American government, the onslaught of Watergate. The precursor to that war, however, was the, not the precursor because we were already active in Vietnam, but in per- perhaps an accelerant to that war was the assassination of John F. Kennedy in November of nineteen sixty-three, uh, one night at dinner, you and I had dinner together. You told me that you felt that JFK, the movie, was your opus. I don't know if you still feel that way, or if that's if you do, why do you feel that way? Why was that your opus? And uh, and tell us a little bit about your experience uh, making that movie.
2: Uh, you're asking these are tough stuff. You're asking me. JFK was uh, my most m- ambitious movie ever. I. I knew it when I was making it, I knew that I was going into a new arena, and I pissed off a lot of people, a lot. I, In some ways, you could say my career was never the same afterward. The film was well done, I thought, it was impactful. It was taking a three and a half hour movie and making it exciting. I mean, it was about tension. There was a murder story, a thriller, who did it? And uh, there's no clear answer, but it's pretty clear to me that It was a significant people who had power behind the scenes, power to make things happen in Dealey Plaza that day. And uh, we went into the, a lot of the reasons for it. Kennedy was changing things. This is a historical point of importance. Kennedy was a big change from Eisenhower and Truman, a new policy for the United States. He understood the third world. Kennedy was against the Algerian war. He was in the, he was in Indochina in the fifties. He really, his speeches, everything indicates a strong anti-colonial mentality. Because he was Irish, you know, you'd say he, he understood the English, what the English had done to Ireland. So there was a lot of, a lot of rebellion in Kennedy. And, but he was a smart man, a young man, and he was going up against an older, at that time, the 60s, the older people controlled everything. They were the establishment. And, you know, you had to be pretty smart to change things. As you know from government, it's very hard to get anything done. And he was biding his time. He said, "Look, they want to go into Vietnam, but I am not going to send combat troops." And he never did. He never broke that. His desire was clearly stated before he died, right up to the last year of his life. We are pulling out of Vietnam. We are not going to. We are not going to go on with this. We're going to maybe give them money, but we're not going to fight their war for them. This is not for us. That that directive, the withdrawal. Of, that was the beginning of that. Was the withdrawal of the first combat troop, of the first advisors, the thousand advisors were coming out. And then he knew he couldn't sell it then, but if he got reelected in 64, which he most assuredly would have, because he was very popular. If he had been reelected, that's when he would have made the big move and the, the bigger changes would have come. And believe me, his enemies knew that. They knew what he was up to in Cuba, they knew what he was up to in Africa, what he was up to in Indonesia and Vietnam. And they would never allow him to do that because not only was he a danger to their whole system of doing things since world war ii his brother uh, robert attorney general was a powerful young man he was a likely successor in 68 to kennedy and of course there was a younger brother teddy kennedy but what they feared was this change in the world america would become a more cooperative member of the world would not seek to impose a colonial a colonial policy that was inherited from France and from England and uh that's I believe those were the reasons he was killed in November of
1: 63. Listen I've seen that I've also seen that movie several times and of course we uh, we have a lot of Wall Streeters that uh, watch the salt talks you've been to the salt conference a few years back yeah right you came to the salt conference uh, tell us about your two Wall Street movies. Well, uh, I, my first question is: Will there be a third? Will there be a trilogy of Wall Street movies? And tell us about the two that you did, and tell us about the impact that they've had on your life, and how do you think they reflect what goes on in financial services?
2: No, the the Wall Street movies. I think this is it because in 1987, my father had just died, and I wanted. Because of the success of Platoon and Salvador, I wanted to do a movie honoring what he said about business to me, which was something like what you said in your book. He said, look, people always make business movies, they make fun of businessmen. They're not positive figures. But actually, Wall Street is the engine, he said, the engine of the American economy. That at that point in time, in the 50s, 30s, 40s, Wall Street was very much the leader in the sense of. A, a source for funding for these, co- these companies to do research and development and capitalize for bigger and bigger jobs, whether it be GE type electronics or, you know. Father was a big believer in American business. He said the way only way to, to, to defeat despair uh, is through work and prosperity. And it was a good message, and I believe in that message. He was totally against, obviously, Roosevelt. He made a boy boy did he take off on roosevelt but let that was came with a time and i understand why he did that but i since then have come more to the roosevelt point of view gordon gecko was the type of wall street operator that my father would have hated he was the slick younger financial looking for money looking for the financial side of things but not caring about the what the company really did and how productive it could be when he takes over the airline in world in wall street from uh, because of charlie sheen's inside knowledge charlie is the son of the union head of uh, the airlines company uh, employees martin sheen plays his father when the son takes that information betrays his father gives the information to douglas it, it sets up a clever chain of events where douglas among other many deeds buys the company buys more and more stock in the company until he has a controlling position at which point he cannibalizes the company uh you you know more about that but you know he breaks off the assets he sells the divisions yeah. mm-hmm. very 80s it was, thing to do yep it's, it's very what
1: it was a very 80s thing to do actually and so you captured it beautifully
2: and it was done by kravis and these people in the 80s There was quite a bunch of them that came by And their argument was, we're good, we're good for business because business has to evolve, these companies are archaic, they're old fashioned, Uh, they have boards of directors that do nothing, and here we can do, we have to make them modern. Well, that's true, but you have to run the company first and you have to administer it, which is what Deco didn't do, he was more interested in if he could make a quick buck by selling assets of the company or, which has been done a hundred times now. I, you, it's a, it's a, the economies of the United States has changed. So, and the result of that has been in 19, in 2008, I think the crash, the, the uh, what they call the, the big bang. I don't know what you call it these days. What I saw in 2008, this is, I thought when I did wall street, which was very successful against all the odds, Nobody expected that to be successful. It's one of the first business movies that really did well and got an Academy Award for Michael Douglas. I thought the Wall Street phenomenon would flatten out; that it was over. But I didn't count on all the young people like you coming into the business who admired Gordon Gecko. Uh, they they oh, saw. My, don't be fair to me. I wrote a book. Said goodbye, Gordon Gecko. You, you, you read yeah. the Well, oh, you got. It. I think you understood. Yeah. I'm saying a lot of young people yeah. told me that. They saw, that was a movie they saw when they were 17 or 18 and it really made their day and they, they wanted to go to Wall Street. They changed their majors from engineering or from uh, uh, science and they That's said, right. well, I'm gonna go into Wall Street. Oh, so I, I, I have one last question for <laughs> well, you. Wait, that doesn't get me to the end of what I'm gonna say. No, no, go
1: ahead, please go ahead. No, I oh, want you to finish, yeah.
2: The reason I went back, I I've been offered sequels to do Wall Street through the 90s and the 2000s. I turned them all down, but uh, in 2008, uh, 2010, I'm sorry, I made the sequel with uh, Michael Douglas because Fox owned the property, and they wanted, to, they wanted to make the movie. They wanted Douglas, they didn't care about me. I, Douglas insisted that I could be it, which I think was a good idea. I saw it as a chance to address this 2008 burndown. Was it 2008, right? Yes, 2008 crisis, yes. Well, because that crisis was completely different. No one saw that coming, except those of the, on the very on the inside. It was about Wall Street being a, a new kind of instrument for banks to operate. Uh, the banks in the Second Wall Street are the are the owners of the economy. That was not true in 1987. The banks, because of Glass Steagal uh, repeal of that law in 1999 by Clinton and that group, that horrible, uh, you know who he is. I forgot his name. Uh, the, the biggest, the guy from. Citibank. Ring a bell?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. You're thinking of uh, Sandy Weil and, and, and Bob Rubin.
2: Bob Rubin, yeah. Those guys pushed, and uh, also Sandy Sandy Weil. Sandy Weil was my father's last employer. Now, how'd that happen? Because he took over his the firm that my father worked for, among other firms. He combined travel companies, insurance companies, Wall Street companies. It was a new business. Everything got bigger, far bigger than I ever dreamed. Money started to inflate. Uh, people were, young people on the street in 1987 who were making $20 million a year, were stunning to me, I couldn't believe it. I was knowing kids from school, hey, I make 20 million, I'll make 30 million next year, blah, blah, blah. I was shocked, it was a lot of money. But, but in 2008, people were making billions, billions. And the banks were got, had gotten into this game, in a big way, and they were obviously with collateralized, collateral collateralized debt, whatever they called them, they made up all these new financial instruments that were making a fortune, a real fortune and it was kind of disgusting because it really had gotten to you know more about it, but it was crazy, it was too crazy. the whole thing was going to blow up, I thought, and they did. they got bailed out, they got bailed out big time, the banks, all the banks, they were all guilty oh. They got bailed out big time by, uh, by, uh, you know, by, uh, by Obama.
1: Yeah. Well, it was actually Bush started to bail out. Obama finished it off, but, uh, Is that true? yeah. Yeah. Bush basically put the TARP program together with uh, Hank Paulson, but, um, you know, listen, I mean, we, we could debate it, but it was, uh, if they didn't get bailed out. It was probably going to be even a further catastrophe. Um, I've, I've got, uh, one last question. Then John has a few questions, uh, yeah, uh, from uh, uh, we have to get our millennial in here so we get good ratings. Oliver, you know, he's like, you know, look at look at how bright and young he looks. But my last question is that you're a phenomenal reader. You're an even better writer, for that matter. I mean, the book Chasing the Light, uh, incredibly well written, and people should run out and buy the book. And I look look at all the books behind you. What books do you recommend to people uh, that have been influential on you intellectually and 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 uh, helped to shape your worldview? Uh,
2: gosh, no, Anthony, that's not fair. I mean, I hadn't, you should have asked me that in advance. I would have prepared a list. I read everything. I read from everywhere. Uh, it's just well, a one. How,
1: how about it just a few that come to mind? You don't have to be uh, that well prepared.
2: I just want to say with Peter Kuznick, I wrote and directed a documentary called Untold History of the United States, which yep. came out. It came out in 2014.
1: Show Showtime
2: did the series, right? No, and it's and it's played all around the world practically, and it continues to do well. It was on Netflix and all that. Now it's on streamer services, and I'm very proud of it. It was a lot of work. It took five years, but I went back to school in a sense with Peter, as a professor of history at American University, liberal, a liberal American history. I don't always agree with him on everything, but he uh, really. Put me through a school in a sense of understanding a lot of the things that I had not understood. The history goes from 1898, the beginning of the F- Philippine War, and our involvement in Cuba and Philippines, and carries through to Obama, and his whistleblower program, and uh, in 2014, it's before Trump, but it's a powerful series. And in, when I and I read so much in about history in conjunction with that, but I still and I enjoy. Uh, and I reached, and I shifted my thinking about everything, about World War II, what the reasons of it were, what the consequences of it were, how America changed in that war. We became, from being an isolationist kind of country, where we became a heavily involved imperial, imperial colonial power, acting as if we were Russia, as if we were the continuation of Britain's empire and French empire. And this was a huge mistake, huge mistake. And that became the basis of our involvement overseas. We have so many military, 800 plus military bases overseas, ringing the world. We we are seeking to control everything in the world and it's just not gonna be possible and sets up a whole bunch of major problems. And we are not gonna emerge from this until we look back to 70 years ago when this World War II ended and see what we did. We committed to a program, which I think we're gonna regret world basically world hegemony world domination um books books uh, uh you know i've read thousands of books i don't know what to say first i think Untold the history uh, is a powerful book uh, right, we'll,
1: we'll, go, we'll and, go with that one well i'll uh, i'll post that up on our website uh, i thought your book was very powerful it was poetic it was heartwarming it was honest it was authentic. It had every every element of your personality was imbued in this book. Yeah,
2: just wanted to show you. Please. There you go. Can you see it? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's very very prominently displayed, and we'll make sure that we get those out there. And I and I will tell you, I watched every every segment uh, on Showtime when it came out.
2: Um, and I, and you, aside from JFK, that is my opus.
1: Yeah. I learned a lot about Henry Wallace in that book. And I yeah. learned about the decision, I, I mean, and not the book, but the series where he was taken off of the ballot, uh, for some of his views, uh, and replaced by Harry Truman, which probably also impacted the way the war ended with yeah. the, with the that atomic bombs that were unleashed in, in Japan. So it is, it is certainly a, uh, a a series documentary worth watching and uh, worth reading the book. Uh, We got a couple more questions for you, Oliver. We're going to invite my millennial co-host in, John Dorsey. Fire away, John. What did I leave out, okay, for the professor here uh, to talk about?
0: Well, uh, Oliver, it's a pleasure to have you on. One thing we like to talk about on this show is, you know, we try to break down the myth that success or self-actualization is a straight line for people who have achieved the type of success that you have in your given industry. And as I mentioned in the open, you went from basically a 30 year old cab driver, uh, big breaks and, and you know, breaking into the movie game, as you like to call it. What was sort of the ingredients uh, to your rise uh, from you know, being somebody who was struggling to make it into the industry to somebody who now is one of the most famous filmmakers of all time?
2: Well, it's a struggle, and I, I outline it in the uh, book, uh, Chasing the Light. Uh, all those years of shaping my writing skills, I mean, I never gave up writing. I wrote the book in 19, when I went to uh, film school, finally, after Vietnam, it took me about six months, almost a year, to get my life together. But uh, when I went to film school, uh, I kept writing screenplays, although they were not popular back then, because the Nouvelle Vague was was in in mode, was in power, and screenwriting was not considered important, but I'd always kept at it. And I, I used to write about two scripts a year or at least one treatment in one script and kept submitting them and getting rejections. Uh, very important to learn for me to learn the art of writing screenplays. Uh, and a lot of directors don't have to. I mean, a lot of young people can become commercial directors or they find other ways, documentary, to, to work their way into directing and producing. But for me, it was always through writing. So that slows you down a bit because it takes longer to write. Uh, and it took me a while to break through. Robert Bolt was significant. He wrote, he was one of the great screenwriters of his time. He, be- he became a mentor at one point. But I talk about the break I ha- I finally had with, uh, I wrote Platoon in 76, 1976. It did not get produced till 86. That's a big, uh, that's, it was rejected numerous times as being negative uh, and all the, all the reasons why, it was real. It was about what I saw and it was important, but it was not Rambo and it was not Chuck Norris film. For that matter, it was not Apocalypse Now, which is a mythic and a beautiful movie, but not realistic to me as a, as a soldier on the ground, nor was Deer Hunter, but they were both powerful. Those two movies were very powerful, but that kicked off a kind of Vietnam wave, but they wouldn't make Platoon. For seven more years, I had to, I was very frustrated. And finally, I got a break with uh, Midnight Express, which was a low-budget film at Columbia in 78, 77-8. And it did very well. It made big money and uh, it was uh, made for very little money, but it was tremendous. It went around the world. And I talk about that and my rise uh, in the, in the system, but then I talk about my fall. And I talk about all those things that, can get in the way, you know, happen to success and how success can be very elusive and, and uh, it can be disfiguring. Uh, I came back with Salvador and Platoon and I talk about that in depth. The Salvador movie is a, is a, how do you make a movie with no money? How do you go down to a foreign country and try to stage a revolution, try to stage a helicopter war? It was really quite a significant undertaking and I'm amazed we survived and succeeded. After Salvador, I made Platoon, all this with British money, not with American money. It was financed out of an independent British producer.
0: How important was your relationship with Martin Scorsese sort of as a a mentor um, early in your, you know, break into into the movie game?
2: Uh, Marty was a teacher at NYU. He was young, uh, very vibrant. There were many good teachers at NYU. Uh, He was one of them. And... uh, I think he inspired many of us. He loved movies, you can see that. He treated it like a theological semin- seminar. To him it was crucial. Movies were the essence of life. They were, it was like finding God. Uh, and I talk about the development and he, how he encouraged, at least with me, he, he very much liked one of the films. I did short films and he told the class one time that here is a filmmaker, which was a, sort of for me like a diploma. Uh, you have to understand that that's very important in a young young man's life, a young filmmaker's life. Afterward, I he became, as you know, a big success in Hollywood. But I really didn't intersect with him much. That, that was my major uh, intersection with him. So you produced a fascinating
0: movie about Edward Snowden. Uh, it's called Snowden. Obviously, it was met with some level of controversy. Um, you know, he is vilified by... U.S. intelligence agencies and much of the Western world for blowing the whistle on government secrets, uh, corporate secrets. Um, but there's also a, a large contingent of people that think that he opened uh, the light on some various serious uh, malpractice or issues related to, to government actions. So in your opinion, and I think I know the answer to this question, but do you think Edward Snowden, as well as Julian Assange, should be pardoned? If yes,
2: Why? You know, uh, yes, I think you know my position on it. I posted it on my Facebook page. I, I think it would be shocking if Trump, who is is not known for his sense of mercy, were to grant mercy to both Assange and Snowden. It would be quite surprising. And it would look good in history for him. It would alter some of the per, perhaps mistaken perceptions of him as a ruthless uh, Ruthless self promoter and egoist. Um, but uh, we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. He's, uh, he's preoccupied with his own thought of uh, his election and so forth. Uh, the, the th- you know, I'm old enough now, and you're I guess you're of a different age, but I'm old enough to have seen, as I said before, 70 years of mismanagement since World War II, 70 years. I've seen the intelligence agencies lie, and the Pentagon, lie us into every war we've been in, whether it was Vietnam, whether it was uh, Iran, Iraq rather, or Afghanistan, and so forth and so on. It, and, and not only the wars, but these missions in foreign countries like in Libya and in Syria and, and all, all over the Middle East, all of, none of which have worked none of which have succeeded. They've only succeeded in killing more people and destroying more infrastructure. Uh, It's tremendous disservice to the world. So I'm not an admirer of intelligence. I don't think of the CIA and the FBI as all knowing, much less the NSA, which they're not supposed to be. They're just supposed to be a gatherer. They gather information. But again, all these powers, all these agencies, use their power to enhance their power they they grow with time like fungus they get bigger and bigger and bigger and they can't check themselves cia was a sm- supposed to be an intelligence gathering uh, organization in 1947 uh, truman intended truman always uh, said near the end of his life that it was a huge mistake uh, you gave these uh, you gave these these are supernational these are outside the democratic process. These are agencies that have way too much power and they've gotten us into a lot of hot water. So I would ask, tell you as a young person, disbelieve everything they say, everything. You have to. You have to demand proof. You have to say, where's the evidence of this? And don't buy their bullshit line about, well, we can't tell you our source because it will compromise our source. Don't go with that. That's the problem. They've been, and I can't believe what happened with Trump on this whole thing. He comes into office and all of a sudden all the liberals, all the liberals in America, they love the FBI and they love the CIA. Many of us were disgusted by this because we know the truth. We know that intelligence agencies promote themselves.
0: So I want to ask you one more question before we let you go, Oliver. Chasing the light ends in 1987 after um, Platoon comes out and you're going through the awards ceremony for that. So, you know, you're always good for a great sequel. Are we going to see uh, Chasing the Light 2 or another uh, iteration of the the second half of your career or what should we expect uh, going forward? I hope so. Year?
2: I do hope so. I hope I sell enough books to justify it and people are interested. But frankly, yes, I would love to. I I think I have to do it anyway just to set my own soul in order before the end Uh is a great story from nineteen eighty six on. You know, that the reason I ended it in eighty six was because it was a big story already. I realized a huge dream, the writing and directing a movie. Not only writing and directing a movie, but the movie achieves an international success beyond beyond any expectation I had. I can't tell you, Platoon went around the world, had huge impact. Every country had made it made an impact. Every country had made money. It got on top of that reviews and it got Oscar nominations and i had elizabeth taylor giving me an oscar for best director and giving me a big kiss what the hell i mean elizabeth taylor was mo- the star of my youth she was an <laughs> attractive young actress of her time
1: uh oliver i'm going to hold up your book one more time here chasing the light a merry christmas to you and your family happy hanukkah happy kwanzaa whatever you're celebrating but more importantly, this is a great christmas gift And uh, this is a gift that every young person should get, actually, because it is a rite of passion story. It's raw, it's authentic, it's honest, and it's revelatory about the human condition in a way uh, that moved me, Oliver. So thank you for writing it.
2: Well, thank you, Anthony. I'm glad you read it, and uh, I hope we get together soon. All right, amen. this is over.
0: And thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's SALT Talk with Oliver Stone. Just a reminder, you can sign up for all of our future salt talks at salt.org backslash talks, and you can access our entire archive of salt talks at salt.org backslash talks backslash archive. Please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you're on those channels, please follow us and uh, follow our pages and interact with our content there. We post a lot of the content live and on demand on all of our social channels. Uh, So please follow us there. Tell your friends about Salt Talks. If you come across an interesting interview, pass it along to your friends, your family. Uh, I know a lot of my family tunes into these talks and and, uh, they still don't understand Bitcoin, but it's a work in progress. Uh, But please pass along the message. We love growing our community and growing uh, the, the audience of people that we're able to educate on a variety of different topics. And on behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off for 2021 from Salt, or signing off for 2020 from Salt Talks rather. Uh, good rid- good riddance to 2020 it's been a long year uh, but we've been fortunate to make the most of it here on salt with these salt talks despite our conferences being canceled but uh, we will see you back here in 2021 and thanks for being part of the salt community